Amen. I love that part that Phil quoted there about the saints are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And it is a delight to gather with you each and every Sunday. I hope you know that. So I'm glad to see you. I hope you're glad to see me. We're glad, we're glad to be in God's word though. So I invite you to take it. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you're just joining us, we are making our way through part of the book of Genesis. Um, earlier, a while back, we covered Genesis 1 to 12, took a break. Now we're going through chapters 12 to 25, kind of covering the life of Abraham. In particular, looking at his faith. What is it? What, what trials does it encounter? How does it persevere? What fuels it? All those questions, looking at the faith of Abraham. This morning we find ourselves in Genesis 18, so I'll give you a second to turn there. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. 
Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, for those of you, if you have not yet taken your Indiana citizenship test, one of the requirements is that you watch the movie Hoosiers. So this is one of the best all-time sports, in case you're not from Indiana, there really is no citizenship test. I want to put you at ease. Um, But if there was, there would be questions about the movie Hoosiers. If you've never seen it, it's based on a true story about this tiny little high school in Milan, Indiana, that won the Indiana State basketball title back in 1954. This is back in a time when they didn't have divisions of big schools down to small schools. It was everybody played against everybody. And in the movie, the school is called Hickory. And they overcome all kinds of adversity to reach the championship game. And while this team from this little bumpkin town has been used to playing all their games in these tiny little country gyms, this game was going to be played in Hinkle Fieldhouse in Butler University. And when they walk into the gym for practice before the game, if you've never seen the movie, they just were overwhelmed with how big everything looked. Their heads are spinning as they just start to think about what lays in front of them, how many seats there are, the seemingly impossible task they have of this tiny little school playing against these monstrously large schools with bigger student bodies, which means probably better athletes, and they're this massive arena with so many eyes on them, with so much pressure, it all seemed too big to handle for them. But then the coach has them do something when they walk in. He takes out a tape measure, and he hands it to the team, and he has them first measure the distance from the rim to the free throw line. Okay? Then he says, all right, I want you to measure the distance from the rim to the floor. Then he tells them, I think you'll find it's the exact same measurements as our gym back at Hickory. Now, what was his point in doing that? His point was that in the midst of everything they were facing that had felt so complex and big and scary, what they needed to do was go back 
to the basics. Go back to what they knew. This was the same game they'd been playing all along. And those two measurements were two simple truths that reminded them this could be done. It helped them believe. Now, I don't know about you. I'll speak for myself. But often as I face challenging situations in my walk with Jesus, I can find myself feeling a lot like that team as they walk into the gym. As I walk into my day and I start to consider all that's facing me, all that I have before me, the pressures, the tasks, the challenges, I can feel overwhelmed by the size of it all. It can feel so complicated and so seemingly impossible. And what I need, and dare I say what we need at times, is to take two simple measurements and be reminded of two simple truths that change everything and help us believe. Two truths that are so simple, my guess is many of you learned them from the time you learned how to pray. What are those two truths? God is great. God is good. Those two truths are what fuel our faith in God's promises. Because if we're going to trust him with our lives, we need to know that God is great, that he has the power to do what needs to be done, and we need to know that God is good and that he will use that power to do what is right. And our passage this morning deals with both truths. The chapter is driven by two questions. Do you see that in the text? I'm going to go ahead and put the, go ahead and put the slide up here. It gives you our outline. The first question is in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In other words, is God great? Can he do it? Is he great enough to handle this? And the second question is in verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, is God good? Is he just? So we're going to see those answers to the questions by looking at those two sections as we go. All right, so let's jump into our passage Let's set the stage in verse 1. Look there. The Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So let's pause there. So, <coughs> excuse me. So here we've got Abraham sitting outside of his tent, middle of the afternoon, and next thing he knows, there are three men standing in front of him. Now, we don't know exactly. You know, some people like to speculate, oh, maybe he nodded off. It was the time of the siesta. So maybe he nodded off and he woke up and they were there. The text doesn't seem to indicate that. It's written in a way that seems to imply these men just showed up, seemingly out of nowhere. And did you catch who it says appeared to him? The Lord appeared to him. So there are three men, but one of these seems to be the Lord himself. We see this in a few ways. I want to point these out. First, if you notice in verses 10 and 13, we're told that the one speaking to Abraham is Yahweh. It's Lord, all caps. It's God's name, Yahweh. Then verse 16 says that the men went down to Sodom while the Lord stayed to talk to Abraham. Okay, so you've got some people going down there, one person staying, and it says in 19, chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom. It identifies these two other men as angels. So if we put it all together, what it seems like is what we have here is God himself coming to visit Abraham along with two angels. 
we get another clue that these visitors are not just ordinary guests when you look at Abraham's response to their sudden appearance in verse 2. Look there. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Okay. Now, we need to understand that while this was a very hospitable culture, and hospitality to any guests would have been expected and, dare I say, demanded in this time and place. But two things stood out about this hospitality. First, you've got Abraham. We know that he's an older guy, right? That's made abundantly clear. He's decently wealthy. He's fairly powerful. And yet here, this older, wealthy, powerful man gets up and books it to these guests. Not only does he run to them, he bows down to them. This is an act of deep reverence and humility. This word for bowing is a word that's later going to be used in acts of worship. The second, while there are three men, Abraham addresses one in particular. He doesn't speak to the group. He, calls, he uses singular words and says, O Lord. That's the word Adonai. Now, typically throughout the Old Testament, when you, you can use Lord, just being a respectful title, but almost every time it's used, it's my Lord. And it's a different form. But whenever it's just Adonai, it's someone speaking to God. So clearly Abraham recognizes this is a visit from God himself. He knows something's up. This is a big deal, not your average Tuesday afternoon. So what does he do? He receives him with open arms and shows him hospitality fitting a king. It's interesting to see how the rules of hospitality play out here. I don't know if you caught this. But first he tells the men, he kind of starts small, right? He says, hey, hey, just, just rest for a minute. Wash your feet, have a little drink of water. And then he tells them, I'm going to bring you a morsel of bread. A morsel of bread. Nothing too lavish. Like somebody shows up at your house, you're like, uh, I think I've got a couple cookies left. I'll, I'll bring those out real quick. Nothing troublesome, nothing elaborate. But then he leaves, and he doesn't get them a morsel of bread. He prepares a giant feast. So why not just tell them up front, hey, I would love for you guys to stay. I'm going to make this amazing meal. Well, here's why. Because rules of hospitality of the day would have required them to say no if he offered that because they would have said, no, 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 that's too much. We don't want you to put yourself out. But it's good hospitality to welcome the offer of a little. So there's this game going on here. If he says, I'll just stay. I'll get you a little snack. Quick, make a feast, right? So he offers them a little but then gives them a lot to show his hospitality. And then notice, did you catch this tornado of activity that starts in verse 6? Abraham went quickly and tells Sarah, quick, make some cakes. Then he kills a calf. Notice it's tender and good. This is some prime, grade A, grass-fed beef right here. And he has a young man prepare it, what? Quickly, quick, quick, quick. This is just a, a flurry of activity whipping up this feast. And at the end of verse 8, he continues to stand and serve them while they eat. This is hospitality at its finest. Now, we might wonder, say, say, that's all interesting, but why does the text spend so much time 
telling us about all these preparations. It's, it's kind of fascinating, I guess. What does this have to do? Well, I think there's two reasons it spends so much time. One is to show us what it looks like to rightly respond to the visitation of God. Abraham receives him eagerly and humbly. He opens himself wide to welcome God's presence in his midst. I mean, he is joyful, eager. He's like, you get the best of everything. It's all yours. Let me, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And the second reason is to contrast his generous hospitality with what we're going to see is the complete lack of hospitality the angels will get from Sodom in chapter 19. They're setting up a contrast. These stories will go together next week when we look at the destruction of Sodom. And they're set up as contrast to show how the righteous welcome God and his messengers gladly, while the wicked do not, and instead seek to harm and dishonor them. So that's part of why it wants to go over the top, saying, look how far Abraham went. But I want you to think, let's think together for a minute about what else is going on here. In the context of confirming his covenant promises, God himself enjoys a meal with Abraham. This is, I mean, over and over in the Bible, you hear me say this, but this is one of those things you can't just read past. Abraham got to eat with God. If I told you that later today, you got to go have lunch with whoever, your favorite professional athlete, your favorite politician, your favorite movie actor, singer, whatever you want, somebody that you're like, oh man, I can never imagine getting time with them, let alone sitting down to eat with them. Abraham eats with God. He dines with the king. Now, eating a meal together was often connected to these covenants we've been talking about because a meal was just that. It was an intimate setting that showed this covenant it's not just a business formal thing. It's rooted in a real relationship. And that relationship was demonstrated by eating together, by communing with one another at the table. And here, God communes with Abraham and eats a covenant meal with him. Now, the next time we see a meal like this, Exodus 24, where God confirms his covenant with Moses. There, God invites Moses and the other leaders of Israel up to the mountain. And Exodus 24, 11 says, They beheld God and ate and drank. God makes a covenant with his people, invites the head of the covenant people up, and they share a meal. And then fast forward, we know many, many years later, in an upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus, the God-man, shares a meal with his disciples. And tells them, this bread is my body given for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So why does all this matter? This, again, that's a cool thread to see, but why does it matter? Because one thing we take away from this is that our God is a God who communes with his covenant people. He doesn't stand far off. He's not disinterested, unengaged, unreachable, Saying like, yeah, yeah, I've got your name on a list somewhere. I know you're part of this massive empire I have, but no idea who you are. No, he comes close and dines with us. We see this in Jesus, right? Throughout his earthly ministry, how many times, 
I mean, we see Jesus constantly sharing the table with others. Read through the gospel sometime and make a note every time you see Jesus eating with people. It really will get you thinking about, huh, what is ministry and life supposed to look like? And as Jesus eats with these people, who were these people that he's sharing the table with? They were tax collectors. They were sinners. They were prostitutes. They were the undeserving. And friends, this is part of the good news for us, is that Jesus takes the lowly and the least and the worst and brings us into covenant with himself and then invites us to eat with him. He draws near to commune with us. Revelation 3.20, the risen Lord Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, many of you have heard that, but did you ever know that that's not an evangelistic verse? That's written to the church. It's written to God's new covenant people. He's inviting us, inviting you and me, saying, hey, what, today I'm knocking. Would you, would you open the door? If you do, draw near. Enjoy time with me. You get close, intimate time with the Lord Jesus that's what communion is, and that's what Abraham experiences here. Okay, but then the conversation shifts, right? Starting in verse 9. He did, God has not come just to enjoy a meal. He's come with a message. But before the message, first the men ask a question to Abraham. Where's Sarah? Abraham says, oh, she's in the tent. Now, just like we've seen many times in Genesis, this question isn't asked because God is lacking information. It's not that he really is confused about you're married, right? Where is, A, he knows her name, okay? So it's not that, he, that already tells us, okay, he, her name has, to our knowledge, has not been said, but he knows who this woman is, and he just says, where is she? Just like the other times, God's not seeking information. He's focusing attention. He's saying, I'm going I'm to speak into something, and I'm going to draw your attention to it by asking a question. So he says, where is this Sarah? Oh, well, she's back there. Then he says, what he has to say about this Sarah. Verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Okay, now, God had already promised back in chapter 17 that Sarah would be the one to bear Abraham's son. That's not new information here. But what's new here is he gets more specific. God says... He has Isaac's birth date on his calendar. He's not, it's not in the abstract, vague promise stage anymore. He says, I have a date. I know when it'll be, Abraham. We all know that there's a big difference, right? There's a difference between some young guy in love telling, telling a girl that he's pursuing, like, one day I want to marry you. That's sweet and all. But there's a big difference between when they get engaged and they set a wedding date. That promise gets a lot more real, right? Because now you know it's not just, oh, that might happen someday. It's September 14th. But that's your anniversary. Happy anniversary. But he has a real date. And so as that promise becomes more real, you'd think, oh, I bet that's what's going to happen for Sarah here, right? She's going to say, oh, there's a date. But Sarah's not a romantic She's a realist. She hears this promise, but then she looks at herself and her situation, 
And she says, has this guy seen us? Look at verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This passage piles up descriptions to make it brutally clear how impossible this promise is. And I love how it doesn't pull punches. Nowadays we have all these like gentle euphemisms. We, we talk about seniors and the more seasoned people and they're more experienced. It says they are old, right? It just lays it out there unashamedly. And it says, okay, wait, maybe you're not tracking with me. They're advanced in years. You're like, well, I don't know. Maybe she's not that old. He's like, look, Sarah's gotten to the point biologically that it's not just unlikely for her to have a kid. It is now biologically impossible. She, she laughs to herself. She says, I'm worn out. This phrase is often used of like clothing and sandals in the Old Testament where they're just in tatters and they need to be replaced. She's like, that's, that's me. You think this worn out body is having a baby. And then again, she very respectfully calls her husband an old man. Did you notice that? She says, he's an old man, but she calls him my Lord. She's not dishonoring him, but she's like, yeah, but he's old. What we're meant to see is Sarah's got lots of reasons to not believe this promise. I mean, it's impossible. And before we're too hard on Sarah, can't we be the same way? I mean, we hear God's promises. We come to church on Sunday, and I hope you hear things in the sermon, truths from the songs, things prayed, and you're like, yes! Then you look at your circumstances. You look at your circumstances and you think, yeah, right. There's no way. I mean, that sounds great and all, but like, has God seen my situation? Does he, does he know who he's talking about? There's, there's no way that can happen. And just like Sarah, we come up with a whole list of reasons why this doesn't make sense to believe something God has promised us. He just, we just can't ever see this happening. But what does God want Sarah, and what does God want us to see here? Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. What he wants us to see is there might be lots of reasons to doubt, but there's one question that gives us all we need in order to believe is anything too hard for the Lord that's the only question we need to settle if God said he's going to do something no amount of impossibilities can stop him from doing what he said there is nothing too hard nothing too difficult and when it says you might have a footnote there in your Bibles when it says is anything too hard for the Lord That word for hard actually means too wonderful, too marvelous. In other words, what what it's wanting us to, to wrap our brains around, he's saying, is there anything that's so glorious, 
so amazing that God can't do it? Is there anything so mind-blowingly magnificent, so impossibly good, and so unthinkably great that God can't pull it off? And the unbelievably good news, friends, is no. Nothing. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too wonderful for him. Not even something as impossible as the gospel. You want to talk about wonderful? The Son of God himself took on flesh and came to earth. The theme of heaven's praises was robed in frail humanity. That's wonderful. You want to talk about marvelous? The perfect man, the only human human in history who has never sinned, died in our place to pay for our crimes. He took our sins and our sorrows and made them his very own. In the stead of ruined sinners hung the lamb in victory. You want to talk about amazing? Jesus didn't just die for us as this noble martyr or this great sacrifice. He came back to life. He's alive right now. And you want to talk about hard? Through faith in Jesus, God forgives us all our sins. All of it. So that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not a little bit. It hasn't been reduced to a tolerable amount. No condemnation. You want to talk about impossible? Through his resurrection, God makes dead sinners alive in Christ. You want to talk about magnificent? One day this same Jesus is coming back to make all things new and to live with us forever in perfect joy and delight. And you know what we say to all that? How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Friends, the gospel is proof that nothing is too hard or too wonderful for God. The question for us, friends, is do we really believe this? Better yet, do we pray like this is true? Do you pray big prayers for things that seem impossible? Or do you find yourself that you stop praying when things seem to get too hard? Do you only pray for things that seem reasonable and you think, yeah, I guess I could see maybe if this and that fell into place, then yeah, I could see that working out. Or do you pray for those things that you say, there's no earthly way this could happen? Because you remember that all things are possible for God. We can and we should pray big prayers because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Over and over again in Scripture, God loves to do what is humanly impossible. So what do you long for God to do that seems impossible? Ask him. God is great, and there is nothing that's too hard for him. Let's go back to that basic this week. Remember that no matter what you're facing, friend, whatever the challenge, whatever the circumstance, God's promises will stand because nothing is too hard for him. Okay, then in verse 16... Our scene changes. The men have started to move away from the tents towards Sodom, and Abraham, as a good host, accompanies them. Then in verse 17, 
God reveals his plans to Abraham. He says, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And by doing that, God shows us what James 2.23 will testify to later, that Abraham was a friend of God. How do we know this? Well, in John 15, Jesus tells us that a sign of friendship is the revealing of plans, right? Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So as his friend, God is making known to Abraham what he's about to do. And he gives two reasons here for telling Abraham. First, in verse 18, God says he's going to tell Abraham because Abraham is going to be the means of blessing to all the nations. In him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it seems fitting for God to let him know why this people, Sodom and Gomorrah, will experience God's curse instead of God's blessing. He's saying, you're going to be the the one through which all the earth is blessed, so I'm, I'm going to let you know why they will not be included in this. Second, in verse 19, we see that God intends Abraham to teach his children and future generations to do righteousness and justice. That that is God's way they are to follow. And I wish we could do a whole sermon. Sometime if you're ever wanting to look up something, find a good concordance and find where righteousness and justice show up together. And throughout your Bible, you see this pair is kind of a shorthand for this is what God calls his people to be and do. A people who do righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. And how this factors in is Sodom is meant to be a lasting warning that this is what happens when you abandon God's ways and instead live in wickedness. When you don't do justice and you don't do righteousness, this is what comes. God wants Abraham to know why this destruction is coming. He doesn't want Abraham just to know that this place got destroyed and be like, that's weird. I wonder why that happened. He wants to say, oh, that was God's just judgment coming on the wickedness of Sodom so that he knows it and so that he can teach. Say, this is the reward of unrighteousness. In verses 20 and 21, God then gives the basis for his judgment against Sodom. Look there, verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now there's a word play going on here that I think is actually really helpful. The word for righteousness in verse 19, see if you can, I'm going to try to say it clear enough you can hear the differences. It's tzedakah. Tzedakah, okay? But now the word for outcry in verse 20 is Zeaka. Zedeka, Zeaka. Okay? Now here's, what ha- here's why it's significant. Because where God desires to find Zedekah, righteousness, in Sodom, he instead finds Zedekah, an outcry. He's looking for righteousness, but instead finds an outcry. Now we, with this outcry, what comes to mind, I'm sure, when we think Sodom and their sin is sexual impurity. And as we'll see next chapter, there was plenty of that going on. But what's interesting is that when the rest of the Old Testament uses Sodom as an example, it's usually one of social injustice and oppression. Listen to Ezekiel 16, 49. 
God says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So what was her guilt? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. God says that was their guilt. So some people there, they were these proud, they had too much stuff, and they were at ease, but they didn't bother to help the people in need, instead ignoring them and often took advantage of them. So most likely the outcry that's going up to God in verse 20 is that of those who are being unjustly mistreated. But notice what God says he's doing here. He's heard how wicked this people is. Their cry has come up to him. But he's not just flippantly raining down judgment. He doesn't say like, oh, I heard there's some wicked people over there. Boom, judgment. No, he says he's going to verify. His punishment will be after careful consideration of the evidence. In fact, there's a good chance that the reason there's two angels going with him are that same principle that you'll see later in the law that conviction requires two witnesses. So he says, I'm bringing two witnesses to see, are they as bad as what people have said they are? The point is that God's going to see firsthand whether they're righteous or whether they're wicked, and that will form his judgment. He wants us, he's, he's telling us already, no one's going to be judged unjustly. He's not just going to do it on hearsay. He's like, I'm going to see the evidence. So at this point, the men peel off and head to Sodom, and you've got Abraham left standing before the Lord. In verse 22. And here is where Abraham raises the all-important second question. He's already heard from this time in the tent that nothing is too hard for God. He knows he's great. But now he needs to confirm, is God also good? Is he just? And what Abraham wants to know specifically is in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He says, if there's, look, God, if there's 50 righteous people in this city, we don't know how many there were, but this would have been a small minority of them. If there's just 50 righteous people, would God spare the city for their sake? Or would he just sweep them away right along with the others? Abram then makes his case in verse 25, says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, what Abraham needed to know is would God treat the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? If so, there was no justice. If the righteous and the wicked get the same thing at the end of the day, he says, that, that's not just. And there'd be no point in righteousness, right? If at the end of the day, if you either live a righteous life or a wicked life, and the same thing happens to you at the end, What's the point? And Abraham rightly recognizes that God is the highest court in the land. He is the judge, he says, of all the earth. In other words, he is the one who evaluates every living being and gives them judgment that fits with their works. And as the judge, it would be unjust for God to make no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. I mean, think about that in our day and age. If a judge gave a same sentence to an innocent person that he gave to a guilty person, we'd say, are you kidding me? I mean, that's not even close to justice, that you treated this innocent person the same way as the guilty. But Abraham says, far be that from you, Lord. In other words, I know you would never do that. 
You will do what is just. I know it. Abraham is declaring that as judge of all the earth, God will judge all people everywhere, and he'll do it with perfect justice. He will always and only do what is right. And we can take so much comfort and hope in that, friends, that one day when we see all the final judgment, there is not one time we'll look at it and say, hmm, I, I don't know about that one, God. There will be no one that we think who is saved that we say they shouldn't be here. And there's no one who's not there that will say they deserve to be here. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. Now this whole conversation between Abraham and God centers around those two words, righteous and wicked, right? They show up over and over and how they're treated. So we need to make sure we know who are these people? Who are these two groups? The righteous as we saw back in chapter 15, are those who are joined to the Lord by faith and follow him in obedience. That's who the righteous are. They're joined to the Lord by faith and follow him in obedience. They are his covenant people. The wicked, on the other hand, are those who have no part in the covenant because of their unbelief, and they have no interest in obeying the Lord. And what we see over and over in the Bible is that because God is just, he will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked when he comes to judge the earth. There will be different outcomes for those two groups of people. Think of Psalm 1. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Jesus tells us something similar in Matthew 25. He says that for the wicked, they will go away into eternal punishment, but for the righteous, into eternal life. Friends, there is nothing more important that you know which group you belong to. Eternity hinges on knowing, will I be judged as a righteous person or as a wicked? And once you die, it is too late. So you must know and how are you righteous? Not by being good enough, not by working hard enough, not by being impressively religious enough, but by faith, by trusting in the God who makes unrighteous people righteous through Christ. So it is on the basis of God's justice that Abraham begins to plead with God to not wipe out the whole city if there are some righteous people there. And I want you to notice Abraham's posture in this conversation with God. He is both humble and reverent, and yet bold and persistent. We see his humility and reverence by the fact that he recognizes his lowly place before God. Abraham here, he's not demanding. He's not banging his fist and saying, God, you must do this. Look at how he speaks. Verse 27, I'm, I'm but dust and ashes. Verse 30, let the Lord not be angry. Verse 31, that, that basically means... I don't deserve to be speaking to you, but I am. In verse 32, just, just one more thing, God. And yet, in all his humility, he's also bold and persistent in his prayer. Six times he says, what if there's this many? He just keeps asking for more. God says, yeah, okay, fine. If there's 50, okay, what about 45? Okay, what about 40? Okay, what about 30? What about 20? I mean, if you have kids, you know that repetitive questioning, like, well, you, you'll be like, fine! But God doesn't. God is not displeased with his persistence. He keeps saying yes. 
And notice what Abraham prays for. For God to spare a wicked city for the sake of the righteous in it. He's not, we, we tend to think, oh yeah, he just wants Lot and his family to get out. That's not what he asks. He prays for the sake of the righteous, God will you show mercy and spare this whole wicked city. So one thing I, I was challenged by is, do we pray like this for the wicked? Do we plead and reverently, yet boldly and persistently ask God to show mercy to those who are wicked? Do we pray for those who persecute us? Abraham does. And as he goes on in this conversation, he keeps whittling the number down from 50 to 10 righteous people. The last thing I want you to see in that conversation, I want you to see God's justice and God's mercy. See God's justice. See that God makes it plain that, friends, you and I can be absolutely confident that the righteous will not be swept away with the wicked. When things happen, when hurricanes come, they wipe out whoever's in their path. When war happens, both the righteous and the wicked die the same way. But God's judgment is not like that. There will be no righteous people swept away in the flood of his wrath. There will be not one person who trusts him that will be innocent collateral damage. Not one follower of Jesus will slip through the cracks or be forgotten. Jesus himself promises this in John 6. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see that God's saying, if you trust my Son, if you put your hope in him, you can know on the basis of my justice, I will not let you be swept away. I will save you. I will spare you. Our confidence in this salvation rests on God's justice. Because Jesus paid for our sins, it would now be unjust for God to condemn us for those same sins. Which is why 1 John 1 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you belong to Jesus by faith, hear this. It's not only kind of God to save you. It is. But it's also just. And we know the judge of all the earth will do what is just. But don't see just his justice. See his mercy here. God is willing to spare many wicked in this city for the sake of only a few righteous. 50. Okay, 45. Okay, 40. Even 30. Even 20. All the way down to 10. Now, we don't know why he stopped there, but he got all the way down to 10. But aren't you glad that even though we all deserve to be judged as wicked for the sake of just one righteous man, we are spared. We who are wicked because of the sake of one righteous will not be swept away in the judgment. That's what we're meant to see is look at the mercy of God who is willing to spare a city for only 10 righteous people. But even more merciful, he spares us who've all done wickedness, who've all been wicked, he says, because of one righteous man. 
To that, all we can say is, how marvelous. How wonderful. Friends, nothing is too hard or too wonderful for our God. He will always and only do what is right and just. So when we're overwhelmed in the fight of faith this week and things seem too big, too scary, too complex, let's go back to the simple basics. Because God is great and God is good, let's trust his promises and follow him in faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning as a great God. A God for whom nothing is too hard Nothing is too wonderful. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are in the heavens and you do all that you please. And none can stay your hand. God, we praise you also because you are a God who is good and just. You will always do what is right. You promise that our salvation is founded upon those two things. That you are able and capable and powerful enough to do it. And because you are just, you ensure that it will happen. And so God, we praise you this morning. And we pray, would you help us in the midst of life's complexities to strip away all the noise, all the clutter, all the fog in our hearts and our minds and go back to those two basics. That we can trust you because you are great and you are good. Help us do that this week. And help us even now as we sing and celebrate just how amazing that grace is. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.